You're listening to The Remix Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Rupnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm back today with Eric Schwartzman, and many of you may know him on social media, but if you don't, I know you're going to get to know him because Eric was one of the first to talk about life as a dad to donor inseminated kids. No, to donor insemination kids. Yeah, that works. That's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of close enough. The kids were <laughs> conceived their don't. Now we say donor conception, and it'll probably change in another 20 mm-hmm. years. We'll probably say something totally different. I'm but, sure. um, but that was the name of, of Eric's blog, of your blog, back in 2005. So we're talking about, you know, really one of the very early voices of dads that have been through this process. Just really happy to have you. Welcome today. Um, Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, because, you know, when there's so many layers to this topic, and it really is a developmental topic that, by when you know, what I mean when I say that is that it changes over time, your needs, your concerns, the things you focus on, the things that you focus on with your children. Everything is so changing over time that I'm really excited to have you here because I think you can see, show the future to many parents that are tuned in right now that maybe came on social media as it started, which wasn't that long ago. And yeah, are really now, wasn't. yeah and are now in the beginning because you are now down the road quite, quite a ways. Um, what, how old are your children now? My children are, I have a son who's 18 years old and a daughter who's about to be 16 years old. Okay. And they've been hearing about this topic and known about this topic since they were little. My son probably was told when he was about two. And my daughter has heard since the point she was born, basically, because her brother was already aware of what was going on. But I mean, like everybody and many of the parents that are having kids now, you know, the question at that time was, how do we tell them? What terms do we use? You know, are we biologically correct? Is, you know, what books tell the story the way we want the story to be presented? So my kids are to the point of hearing about this topic where I don't think they care about it as much anymore. And they're just like, dad, shut up. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, my kids, I mean, growing up in New York City, it's, it was, they got very lucky that um, seeing uh, various forms of families was nothing unusual for them. My kids mm-hmm. literally grew up in elementary school with friends that were two mommy families, single mommy families, uh, heterosexual mom and dad families. So they, they, they got used to the concept of donor conception fairly early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So your son is 18 and my son is 19 and you said your daughter's almost 16. My daughter's almost 16. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's uh, we definitely, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But if your daughter's birthday is the same day, I'm going to really freak out, but we'll talk <laughs> offline. <laughs> um, so yeah. So it's again, good to have your perspective because issues do change over the years of what you're focused on. Let's let me start by asking: Is your blog still online? If people wanted to access that and read it, mm-hmm. I know it's been some yeah, years it, now. But. It's the blog is still online. It's it has gone through um, periods of being a little dormant, fewer postings in a year. Certainly, the first few years that I did it were the heaviest periods of blogging. In the past few years, it's been more 
just checking in, giving updates as to where my kids are. If I see things online that are especially uh, hit home for me, I may talk about them. Uh, so the blog is definitely there. I mean, it, it's it's linked via my in my Instagram page. It's easy enough to find it there and to get to it. Uh, but usually, if you just use my name, Eric Schwartzman, and Infertility, you will find a link to my blog. Okay. Yeah, so that's something to, to look up. I started a blog in 2010, so I don't know how we didn't cross paths back then, but because um, I definitely felt like I was speaking in... Um, <laughs> to nobody, you know, um, back then about the needs that parents had and the re- more resources that parents really needed that mm-hmm. were going through donor conception. Yeah, I think mine was a little dormant at that point. There were was a few it? years okay. in the middle when we had some other family issues going on separate oh, from donor it. conception that I became a little quieter. Oh, that would be it. Then we, we miss each other. But we've we found each <laughs> other now, which is awesome yes. because we do have a lot in common. And I think it can speak to that older voice that to this mm-hmm. topic. So let, you know, kind of just want to ask you a few questions about what, you know, if you could say there was like one thing that's really changed since you started speaking out about this topic in 2005, what would you say you've seen as the biggest change? I I think the biggest change is the proliferation of sites like 23andMe. Uh, The biggest change has been the increase in sites that are generated themselves by donor-conceived individuals. I think in the beginning, um, you had a few people that there were some things to be able to check on online. Uh, Ryan Kramer, Wendy Kramer's son, he very early on was able to locate his donor, you know, before there was the advent of all the Ancestry and 23andMe sites. But I think back then you had um, a grouping of donor-conceived young people and adults who were just finding out family, you know, secrets were divulged and, you know, people were blogging and there was a little little level of anger. The kids that really weren't interested in the topic or they had no issue with the topic, they weren't out there as much online. I think nowadays with the proliferation of DNA techniques and social media, you have a lot more, many more voices added to the rainbow of who you could, you know, listen to and learn Mm -hmm. from. Yeah, which is great Mm -hmm. because there are so many different stories Oh, yes. around donor conception and just non-biological families to be heard. And what, speak to a little about, if you don't mind, speak to what uh, do you think, where was that coming from? I mean, I, I certainly know just in, as a, being a therapist in this area, I certainly understand the anger and where it's coming from. Tell me your perspective on that and what you kind of more, you know this more intimately in family life as I, well. I think, and it was one of the things that drove me in the very beginning. I had done a, uh, a seminar up in Toronto with Diane Allen's group. And at that point had been there only blogging a short amount of time. The, the dad's discussion group that was on Yahoo at that time, we only had about maybe 30, 40 members at that time. And I met a number of people who had just, they had a anger feeling they were cut off from their genetic past. They were cut off from their medical history. And I think it was just people weren't open. Most hetero, I mean, certainly if you came from a two mommy family or a single parent family, you knew your story. You had to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a question of then, you know, how did the parents pose it? You know, how did the parents... Uh, what tools were given to the young people to help process the information that that's the greatest issue for me is what tools you know young people have to be able to understand what's going on but I think that drove one generation of people who were out there and prominent about it 
because they couldn't get information from the cryobanks. So, you know, open donor was really just beginning. And even if your donor may have consented to be open donor at that time, when people were 18 and writing to the cryobanks, they weren't getting the information they expected. They had, uh, they had almost expected there would be an automatic, you know, hello, and they'll speak to me. But many donors weren't that interested. Yeah. So I think what I've seen is just, it's changed as far as who's involved. Certainly there is still a class of people that have a anti-donor conception um, bent because they feel that their lives have been altered or they were never given a choice in the matter, certainly. But I think as more and more families are open about it and help give their children the tools to be able to process it, I think folks are looking at it from a different perspective. They still want information, but I think the... Um, the pain is probably still there for some, but they mm -hmm. can process it better, perhaps. Yeah, maybe there's less of a layer to process. Because mm -hmm. yeah. I think when you start with an, uh, a lie and a break of trust or a betrayal, then you've got to work through that. And we know anyone who's had any kind of betrayal experience, betrayal in their life or a break of trust, you know how difficult that work is to overcome and how heart breaking it is. Exactly. And so you ha that takes a tremendous amount of time and effort of to heal from. And that's from. why I think the folks that learned when they were younger have a different perspective than folks that only learned when they were in their teenage years. Teenage yeah. years, we already know, you and I certainly know, are years our kids are trying to develop their identity. They're trying to develop a separate identity from the parents. To all of a sudden be thrown for a loop to learn a secret at that age is much, much harder than yes. it being explained when you're, you know, seven, eight, nine, or even younger. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you almost have that first, uh, that first hurdle to overcome if you keep it a secret. And then the next hurdle would be just any general, um, negative feelings about being donor conceived or being cut off from their biological roots that could come even in a loving family that's established trust and honesty from the beginning. That's actually can normally happen as well. So, you know, that's just kind of something as all kids have varying various feelings about various things they go through in their life. Um, it's possible to have challenges. So I think it's important for parents to understand that just because you tell the truth from the beginning doesn't mean that's going to, exactly. uh, you're never going to exactly. have any negative challenges. And that's, I think, the thing that people need to understand. Our kids change just as we change. We've all go through, I mean, when we talked about um, you know, perspective and talking about how it is to parent a child that's donor conceived, first and foremost, you're just a regular parent and dealing with all the regular issues of being a parent. And this just adds, like you said, another layer to it. But we have to understand as our kids age, they go through different levels of identity realization. I don't know what the technical term would be for it, but certainly as they're a teenager, as they enter college, as they graduate college, get a job, meet someone they fall in love and start their own families, your identity is challenged at every part, at every phase. And so you rethink what's important to you. And I think exactly what you just said, that a kid that, you know, my kids, when they were two to the time they're 13, they were all very happy about donor conception, wasn't really an issue. Somewhere around 13, 14, my younger one started to want to learn more about, you know, can I find the donor? Now, my kids grew up knowing half siblings. So the concept of they already know there was some extended family out there and we on a yearly basis and when I was married and afterwards, 
Um, usually we'd do one family trip a year where we'd go visit with one of the other families and the kids would, you know, they were more like cousins the way they're, you know, how they're connected with each other than true yeah. brother or sister. But they all refer to half of them call each other brother or sister. One family uses terms more uh, like half siblings, but exactly what you just said that just because a child into their teenage years may be fine with it doesn't mean when they start thinking about their own family, um, they start thinking, what am I missing? What could I be missing? And it's not to say they will or they won't, but parents have to be aware that it's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. And that can be scary for parents to hear that because they kind of want that, um, you know, maybe a guarantee or they want to feel reassured that everything's going to be okay. And and I think my my message is, you know, it can be okay. It's not to say that things won't be okay. It's just to be able to tolerate those challenges as they come up and have the skills to know how to address them too. Mm -hmm. How did you find those just skills and resources along the way? Talking with people. I, I think one of the things that I found, uh, I've always been somebody that I like talking and, and like learning. And so in the beginning, when uh, the first couple of years, there were some donor conceived adults that were kind of angry at me for using donor conception because I was being public about it. They, I was a natural target. Yeah, but I think time people saw that I wanted to learn, that I wanted to hear both sides. I think mm -hmm. over time I've come to the conclusion, and and some people have kidded me around about this. Said, "Who are you an advocate for? Here, are you an advocate for parents, or you're an advocate for kids?" And I said, <laughs> both. "Well, I'm both." But to yeah. be honest, I think as parents, our first goal is to be an advocate for our kids and Absolutely. put our own, you know, our own feelings aside, and that's. One of the things that I learned very early on is that, look, I, I had male factor infertility. I was diagnosed with um, non-obstructive azoospermia, which just basically meant I didn't produce enough sperm uh, statistically to be able to more likely than not father children. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, live through that pain and that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. most people who use donor conception have to understand that it's not a cure for your infertility. You still have that issue. That issue doesn't go away if you're mm -hmm. going to try to have kids again down the road, but your focus changes. Now your focus has to be your child. And right. so when people ask me that question of who I'm an advocate for, I said, first and foremost, it's my own children. Mm -hmm. And then I'm an advocate for, you know, other children that may not have a voice and trying to help parents find that path. Like you're saying, mm -hmm. you know, how do you learn the skills? And I think it's really just being open to listen and open mm -hmm. to the possibility of those fears um, being realized about children, you know, uh, wanting to learn more. I think that's the first thing when the, my children weren't upset with me, perhaps, or my daughter, excuse me, my son has never really been that interested, but my daughter wanted to learn more. So she's like, are you okay with that? And I'm like, I'm fine with it. But a lot mm -hmm. for a lot of parents, that's very, even that first step is very hard for them to hear. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah, it truly is. And I think parents that even think they're okay with it over the years can then, when the reality of it hits, can have big reactions that they maybe realize they haven't dealt with their emotions mm -hmm. fully. So, you know, I'm a, I really encourage parents to work through their emotions when their kids are, you know, before their kids get here or when they're young. And it does take time. It's not something you can just do overnight. So that when their kids get older, then they, they are, they've done the work. So then they can help their children do the work. But if you haven't done the work, then you can't really do the work for your children. You can't help them do the work either. 
So right. you'll end up either trying to block their work or they won't talk to you about their own needs. And their needs have to be validated. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain things like uh, DBT therapies say that you, you know, you have to be able to look at things from two sides. And I think yeah. the idea is you can recognize that you may have some pain and discomfort, but at the same time, you have to look at what the child needs or the young adult needs. And those two parts can exist at the same time. There's nothing Absolutely. that says one has to take over the other. That's right. And I, I talk about that. I don't know if you've heard me talk about dialectical thinking and mm-hmm. The, um, that's exactly what you just described, yep. which is that we can look at two sides and they can have opposing views even, but we can merge the tension. We can hold the tension of those two conflicting ideas and still embrace them both exactly. um, and, and find a way to reconcile them. And what David Brodzinski's research with adoptees shows that um, adoptees that over time find peace and healing uh, in their story, that's what they do engage in is this dialectical thinking that is a more advanced type of thinking. And many people, you know, it does take some work to get there, but that um, when you're searching for yourself, you know, and you're um, trying to make sense of your past and your now and everything, that can, it can really help. It does. Um, yeah. It, it, it really allows you to be able to say, and, and it allows you to forgive yourself for those times when you do have pain and you, you may feel guilt. You're allowed to have both sets of feelings. Yeah. And I think it allows you to understand that and to, to give yourself that opportunity to, uh, you know, move forward with both sets of feelings. As a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned to have guilt and I think that's, you hit on something because so many parents, I think, resist that feeling of guilt really strongly and in their resistance come up with all kinds of kind of knee-jerk reactions. Uh, what would you say to parents to help them when maybe they do experience feelings of guilt? It, it's, it's a hard thing for them to understand. And it's a hard thing to be able to get them to understand when you speak to parents. But I think basically you say, look, you, we, we all are, you know, for a number of us that use donor conception, whether it's donor egg or donor insemination, donor sperm, you've made a choice. This is your family. And there are certain things you can and cannot do. Once, you, once the kids are here, you can't go back and put a genie back in a bottle by any means. So mm-hmm. you can show your kids that you love them by you know, being there and giving them support. The guilt that people may feel, what's done is done in that respect. I mean, if there, if there were people that really felt that the issues that donor-conceived uh, individuals have in front of them is so great that a parent doesn't want to risk having that. Maybe donor conception is not the path for them to becoming a parent. Maybe mm-hmm. adoption is is more the path for them. Mm-hmm. But I think for the I, the parents who you know are having the guilt, it's mostly just learning. It's learning and forgiving yourself, and then to be able mm-hmm. to say, look, this is where at my where my I'm at. What can I do to help my child? How can I validate? their feelings? How can I validate if they want to go forward and look for a donor, if they want to look for half siblings, if they want to tell me about a sibling, you know, they found a new sibling, be excited for them. That's a really big deal to have, you know, to find the new brother or sister that's out there. Uh, some of the young people I know that have, are, you know, members of 50 and 60 sibling groups, it, it, it's, a, it's overwhelming for everybody. But I think I had recently posted something on one of the other Facebook donor conception groups. I can't remember which one it was now. It may have been Karen's group, where I asked the donor conceive, what are the things you would like your father to know? What would you like to say to them? And overall, the answer that came back is their dad is their dad. 
and they're not upset at their dad. They just wanted, you know, some of them would have liked a little bit more uh, the dad be involved in their life, maybe be more excited for them when they were looking into a topic, if they, mm -hmm. you know, just to listen. And there's a generation of men who were uh, part of heterosexual couples that used donor conception that really shied away from telling their kids. So some yeah. of these kids only learned as teenagers, adults, and some of them only learn once the dad has passed away. Mm -hmm. And that's the hardest thing because those adults can't get to be able to thank the dad for, you know, being so brave to have them. And even to have the discussion about, you know, how was it for you? You know, I would have liked to be able to share my feelings about how I feel about it now. But again, going back to parents in general about guilt, it's really just letting them see what's in front of them, what's in front of their kids, and to be able to allow themselves to forgive themselves. I mean, there, there are some people out there with that would say you should never have chosen donor conception, but people want to have families. This is an option available to us. Um, yeah. So when people, if somebody's listening and they're saying, and I completely understand what you mean by forgive yourself, but what if there's someone just for those that are listening saying, well, hang on a minute, forgive myself. I don't understand what he means. I've done nothing wrong. What do I have to forgive myself for? And, and there has been done nothing wrong, but That's right. the, yeah. the issue is that there is a, um, the concept is again, like I said before, you don't cure infertility. You may mask the infertility in that you've been able to have a child be in a donor conception methods, but some people say that you've traded the pain of your infertility for the uncertainty of issues of how your children are going to address this topic if they're not able to process it easily. Yeah. And so it's that concern or that shifting of, of pain from parent to child that some people will try to assign guilt to the parents. And that's a tough thing for a parent to understand, mm -hmm. much less be able to process themselves. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, what comes to mind, and that's so true, that's so well said, that when I would say to, to help people understand what you mean by forgive yourself is what you're, you're also saying, that's the same way of saying, be compassionate with yourself. Mm -hmm. And so... And, and I love that because that's a better word. <laughs> no, forgive is a, I, I don't want you to think that because forgive is, is a great word too. And it's just, I'm just trying to show people that that's what you mean. You mean forgive in the sense of compassion, compassion, not of wrongdoing. No, that's exactly what I yeah. mean. Yeah. So I definitely want people to lower their guards a bit because <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel it. I know I work with people all the time and that, that, um, resistances are strong. They really are strong. And I think it's that we all shy away from our feelings of guilt and shame within ourselves. But the more that we can embrace that and look at it and be super compassionate with ourselves that we're doing the best we can, first of all. Mm -hmm. And as long as we are committed to keeping, to continuing learning like you are and growing, that there's room to, to invite more and more into our lives and to expand. It just becomes more, like you said, like you're going along walking with the journey with your kids that mm -hmm. that expands your experiences too and not only your experiences Definitely. but your bond with your children yes you know and, that and strengthens it that's, that's the biggest thing i think the stronger you can make your bond with your children and be involved in their lives it gives them a greater base to work from mm -hmm. and, and it's more fulfilling for us as parents rather than just having kids and just saying okay they're born let them go off and do their own thing i mean we're yeah. not here just to do that we want families yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I know you can definitely understand this too, that one thing 
I will tell people is that remember that you're going to spend most of your relationship with your child in your life in an adult to adult relationship. We only spend 18, well, I mean, they're, they think they're adults by 18. So we spend less than 18 years in relationship with your children as we're the parent and they're a child. And then they're a grown up. And then you have to have, you want to have a strong bond and a relationship and a friendship as you grow, you know, older together. Mm-hmm. And that begins with trust, openness, communication, dialoguing over, you know, intimate parts of their life. So I love how you said, gosh, they want dad to ask about them and their donor search experience. You know, I just think of that dad, talk to me about my donor. You know, that's, it, that's what a you powerful thing. I mean, yeah. what you can share is important. I mean, my kids got lucky that we have, at that time, you know, you maybe got a baby picture, maybe, uh, maybe there was an audio interview with the donor, um, which I transcribed and have sent to most of the kids at this point in my kids group. Um, there's, you, you want to be involved. I mean, I, I think back to the Harry Chapin mm-hmm. song, Cats in the Cradle, that mm-hmm. you don't want to just be, you know, mm-hmm. running in your own world and not involved in the other person's world. Once yeah. you, you know, stay involved, it's a much deeper bond. That's so true. Stay involved. And if it hurts, um, you know, if it hurts you as a parent, as you, it starts to unfold, you know, go out and do some, do some work, go find a therapist, find a friend, find a community online. Like you're involved in, you know, talk to people like you that uh, can help you work through that. And then go, you know, then you can go and talk with your child, you know, um, and then go do your work again. So you can even Mm -hmm. simultaneously do it if you find it's coming up later in life when you didn't expect it to. Mm -hmm. So, um, there, luckily there are more and more resources out there with social media for people to find find groups and areas they can, they can continue to learn. I still find the dads are hesitant to speak. Usually a number of the dads that find me or find my group usually are via their wife or their spouse or their partner um, hearing about, you know, a discussion or seeing something. And so dads, it's still, you know, there's still a little bit of a stereotype that it's harder for them to discuss. And that's why the, the dads group that I run, you know, we made it men only just because there weren't other platforms that they could discuss the issues. And, you know, there are a lot of men's, what I'm noticing in the last number of weeks, there are a lot of men's uh, support groups that didn't exist years ago when I was going through it that I'm very happy to see. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that that's because of this, this toxic masculinity around fertility? I mean, certainly that's, it, that's one of the major issues that's always been there that, you know, when, when it's a male factor issue, men feel less about themselves. They don't feel as good about themselves. They don't know, you know, whether they're, they're living up to their end of the marriage contract in that regard. And there are stigmas that still are there. And there's, you know, I think American society has gotten better as far as what roles are assigned to men and women that certain things as being parents are more fluid as to which individual is, you know, more involved with kids' lives or as involved in kids' lives. But there's still a level of things out there that men, you know, since just the the genetics of it, that it's the man generating the sperm and, you know, the sperm entering the woman and then finding the egg and all that, that men feel like they're supposed to be the proactive if they can't do that, you know, uh, what am I missing? Who am I? Uh, but I think that's gotten better. I think yeah. men can, you know, we've been able to separate who you are as an individual 
versus what your body and body can and cannot do. I mean, we've all, um, you know, you get to a point where you say, okay, I'm a good person. Maybe I can't run as fast. I'm a good person. Maybe I can't do this or that. Yeah. And I think that's gotten better, but it, it's still somewhat out there, but it's gotten yeah. better. It has. And in fact, I don't know if you heard, I've spoken before about the group on Reddit. There's mm-hmm. a male factor infertility group there. And um, I can point that group to your uh, groups as well, just to connect. Yeah, I, I would even like more. to be able to learn more about what they're going through. And if I can do anything to help, I'd love to yeah. do so. There's one that's for male factor infertility, and then they talk a lot about azospermia in it as well. There's quite a few talking about that in the Reddit group. So I'm kind of in and out of it, kind of forget about it for a few months and then come mm-hmm. back. It's got so many things going, but I will definitely, um, I'll give, I'll send that information over to you as well. So, cause yeah, I think the younger guys are really looking for the older guys like you to, um, more experienced to, to talk to. I think that helps a lot because, you know, if I would, you know, if I had a lot of time with you today, I would like want us to sit down and let's the two of us talk about the stages that everyone go, that parents would go through beginning with their children, the baby years, all the way up through mm-hmm. the teen years, because there's we know so there's yeah so many things along the way and there's commonalities and common challenges that come up. Um, I'm going to jump to two big ones. I'm going to make a huge jump in the, sure. in the, that developmental timeline, but one starting with um, I want to start with kind of what something's been a bit of a hot topic on social media lately about family resemblance talk mm-hmm. when the babies are little. Um, this is really, really common uh, uh, just in social norm kind of that people will talk about who the baby looks like and parents when they're in that stage really struggle it's with It's a this. hard topic. It's yeah. a hard thing for people to hear. I mean, the, the first couple of times, you know, the, as soon as a baby is brought home from the hospital, people are asking, who does he or she look like? And, and that's got to be the most painful thing in the world, always for the, for the non-genetic parent, the social parent. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a tough thing, but I think there, there's no cure other than just dealing with it, accepting it, and having fun with it. I mean, you know, okay. I would dress my son just because my style is this or that he ended up getting dressed like that and so people (laughs) say oh he looks like you so much and i'm just like (laughs) yeah well that's because he's wearing a hat that's like mine right now let me guess it was a baseball hat (laughs) yeah for me it was definitely a baseball hat Uh, but for it's funny because people look for things to say people want to be sociable people want Mm -hmm. to be personable uh, although for some reason I'm thinking of that Seinfeld episode where they're saying that's just an ugly baby, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but people, people want to show that they, they see you in that child. They want mm-hmm. to know that they see your genes in that child, your personality in that child. Oh, he smiles like you. He raises his eyebrow like you and people mm-hmm. see what they want to see. And it, it got to a point when, when I was, uh, I was still married when my kids were very young, but they were, um, you know, I would look at my, my wife and we would just give that knowing smile like, you know, how many times have we heard this? And you <laughs> out of it because if you can't laugh out of it, you, you, you don't really want to mm. cry about it and that'll just, you know, delay it. And, you know, then it comes down to the nurture versus nature thing, that argument of what, you know, what characteristics do our kids pick up uh, mm. that we have that may or may not be genetic. And, you know, there's, truth in both directions you know genes do it a certain amount and how you grow up does a certain amount but you know the one we were talking about like we're saying is online right now it's in the beginning it's very tough for those moms and dads because even you know the the moms my wife when even though it was male factor 
in the very beginning before we even had kids, she couldn't be at parties where people had babies. You know, the, the typical thing that a lot of mothers yeah. and fathers have trouble with. And once my kids were born, she was completely fine. The donor conception was really never an issue for her because she was the biological parent. And that was something that she wanted to move past now. Um, but for the social parents, hearing those comments about, you know, how children look family resemblance, it takes a while for that to, you know, fade into something that's not an issue at all. And you get through it. You really do. But in the, in the very beginning, it's a tough thing, especially when, you know, you haven't told people. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Story. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, but it's, it's something that you just, you know, you dig your heels in, you may grimace a little bit, you may laugh about it, you may cry about it. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that at all. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it's just one of the stages, like you said. Yeah, it is. It sure is. It is a stage. And yeah, I like how you say it doesn't end with the infertility. It just, you know, I think it changes and you, there's these new hurdles that you, are going to face, but that you can, you can face mm -hmm. them. You can overcome them. Yes. Pain will come up again. Grief will come up again. And that's part of the grieving process is to, uh, to see it each time, allow it to come through. And, you know, like you said, deal with it in the various ways you you've mentioned and, you know, know that it's going to be okay as long as you keep allowing yourself to face it. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Yeah. And then if I, I'm going to jump ahead way ahead and skip a bunch of important years, which I wish we could, you know, detail all of them, but we just can't in one podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but because you have teenagers, I kind of want to skip ahead to teenagers and say, you know, what, what would you say, what stages are coming up for you now? I know you, meant, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning, but anything else that specifically? Um, I think, again, it comes down to where their identities are developing, how they want to develop themselves as individuals. You know, what do they see as an individual trait? And, and then when they start noticing they have certain traits that are different from the parents, they may start saying, I wonder if my donor has that trait. Where did I get mm -hmm. that trait? And certainly they're at ages where the teenagers, you start, they start looking more deeper at things. As I said, my, my daughter, when she was probably around 13, 14, started being more curious about the donor. So she started having more conversations with, uh, she has one half sibling sister. And so the two of them were talking about it and they made sure both of them were on 23 and me. So I, you know, paid for the test to have my daughter onto that. And so they were curious who they would find. Uh, again, my son, it, it really hasn't been an issue. Although I had never played for them the audio of the donors interview that I had from the cryobank. And they got a kick out of listening to it, but their attention spans are they, you know, just for them, they listened to two minutes out of a 20 minute thing. And they said, oh, we'll come back to it later because I'm watching this TV show. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked because I would have listened to all 20 minutes if, I, if mm -hmm. I was them. So it depends how important it is to them. My kids know I'm their dad and they, you know, they don't really, they're not looking for another dad. Mm -hmm. uh, are they curious who the father is, who the donor is? At this moment, these two are not. I know others that are. Um, my kids, by pure chance, uh, their mother had done the same DNA test through Ancestry where my kids met their other, the first two siblings they met through, uh, through donor sibling registry, we were connected. This newest sibling who's 18 years old, or I think he's maybe, yeah, he's 18 years old, they found through Ancestry.com through their DNA database. Mm -hmm. And so they're beginning a relationship with this new young man. And it's, it's very interesting to watch. You know, my daughter's texting him here and there. My son, my son once or twice, it depends on the kids. Um, so they're navigating it on their own in a whole different way. When my son goes to college in the fall, 
Uh, he hasn't been that much into dating so far in his teenage years, but I, I expect that'll probably change a little bit once he's in college. And he very much knows he has to be upfront of, as to his story, because if he meets somebody that the same thing, we want to make sure that the, he's not dating a sibling. Okay. And um, mm-hmm. so those are the kind of issues they're dealing with. But it, it, at these ages, it all comes down to identity. It what does. are they looking for? Yeah. And they're not quite in that phase yet where they've probably gotten into the philosophical um, thought or aspects of it, but that's probably coming around the corner as he goes off to college and comes back. um, Then they'll be talking about that maybe a little bit more and exploring that with you, which gets really fun. I have to say it gets super fun because, you know, if you enjoy that type of talk and can, um, can start sharing the, that they can teach you things that, you know, I know my son does, he teaches me things, ways of looking at things that I haven't even thought of. So it's, it's pretty fun, but yeah, the identity development is big and it doesn't stop in the teenage years either. It continues on and it can go on into well into adulthood um, because we're always growing and changing and we always are figuring out who we are for a long, long, long time. And that's a good thing. So, I mean, like we said, every stage, I mean, it's with, you know, going to college, graduating from college, finding mm-hmm. a job, finding your first getting home, married. Lo- yeah. getting having married and, and, Kevin, and then losing parents. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm lucky enough, both my folks are still around, yeah. but I know folks that re, uh, reevaluate who they are. Yeah, you know, sure. I'm now alone in the world. I don't have family, you know, if you don't have cousins or whatever it is. Yeah, and, and they might be looking for family at yeah, this point. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or they might have a, a, a health problem. I know a lot of people contact me when they've had a their first health crisis and it's really frightening for them and they start contemplating things a little bit differently. And um, so, yeah, lots of different things that can come up along over the years. So it's good to know that you just, you can take it one day at a time. You don't have to take it all at once, but yeah, I mean, that session that I have with the people I'm fortunate enough to be able to have a counseling session with before they go through donor conception, um, really, really just scraping the surface. That's all we yeah. can do is just be able and, to scrape and, the surface. And you want to at least to have that. I wish more clinics did that. They at least that you're yeah. starting to be aware of the issues. So, you know, then folks will go off on their own and on the internet, they'll, you know, start reading a little bit more, listening a little bit more, mm-hmm. but at least for that service. Cause when you look at what adoption, you know, families looking to adopt the amount of research that they have to do with the amount of oversight that's involved with adopting yeah. is mm-hmm. so much greater. And, you know, I look at, you know, I used to use the term, my kids were half adopted in, mm-hmm. in essence, we half adopted them. Yeah. And I kind of wish, you know, not that I'm looking for regulation on the parenting side so much, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't mind if we can get the cryobanks regulated, that parents have a little bit more to be regulated as well. It wouldn't be a terrible, yeah. terrible thing. Me too. And I think it's because what, in my experience, I find parents are really able and willing and seeking information and they're being misinformed and misled. And they, at least as I've seen the changes over the past decade, is that it's gone from them primarily kind of still wanting to keep it a secret and being fear-based to now coming in more informed and just wanting, hungry for more information. So there's no reason to keep it from them. And they certainly don't need to be coddled. um, I'd love to see another chapter in Dr. Spock on this this topic. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I think that could be really helpful, and I hope that's the direction we're heading. Yeah, I think it well, is. What do you What do you think about um, closed or and kind of more unknown versus known donation? I, I definitely I would do as much open or known as possible, but at mm-hmm. the same time, 
with the understanding that even though that may be how you started your contract with the cryobank, with the, with the, uh, uh, any of the folks out there, you don't know what's really going to happen when the kids turn 18. If it's yeah. an open one, you know, one of those kind of things. If it's yeah. a known donor, you know, a family member, a friend, then it comes down to uh, part of my background is, is I'm an attorney. And so I, mm-hmm. I read a lot of cases out there then, you know, what are the roles and responsibilities? If a couple is going to use a known donor, I think they have to have it written down as to what the expectations are on all sides. Yeah. How is the person going to be involved in their life? Certainly when you have mm-hmm. two mommy families or a single mommy family, you know, if it's a known male donor, what is their role? What is the expectation? All with the mm-hmm. guise of how is the kid going to relate to this person? What is, we don't want to set the child up for seeing somebody in their life and then the person isn't in their life. Yeah. And that's a hard thing. You want to know, you know, what can the, the child needs to be able to rely on certain touchstones in their life that are rock solid. Mommy's always here. Daddy's always here. Even if there's a divorce, they know mommy's always here. Daddy's always here. Mm-hmm. So it's a known donor and you introduce this person into the mix, you have to lay out what is that person's role is, you know, are, um, what is it from, from finances down to participation in birthdays. And so mm-hmm. I don't have a problem ever with the idea of a known donor. It's just that there's a lot more involved with what are the expectations and what we're going from there. Uh, with open, you know, they're working with the cryobanks again, you know, a kid may be raised saying, Hey, when you're 18, you'll be able to contact the donor. Well, you got to temper those expectations by saying it's the possibility that this donor is going to be open to it. There's no guarantee. And even when they've been open to it, some have agreed to, you know, they'll have a very curt conversation. Hi, this is my name, but I'm not telling you more than this. Other donors Mm -hmm. are very open and willing to share who they are and what they are in their lives. Mm -hmm. But it really depends on everybody being able to temper the expectations, hoping for more than less and being able to, I think, you know, just set ground rules, especially when we're dealing with known donor situations. Yeah, and also be able to get the resources for your child if they are facing a situation where their donor has closed the door on them, mm-hmm. that you, you know, get that child to t- be able to, sp- to talk to a counselor or speak to somebody, even, um, you know, somebody that they can relate to about it because it can be very difficult. I know my last guest talked about biological, it feels like a biological rejection. Mm -hmm. And um, so that can be difficult. So you definitely want to have resources that you can turn to at that point. And and there's a lot of resources we pull from the adoption community that, you know, Mm -hmm. adoptees who have found their, you know, their bio parents, you know, how do they address that? How do they? And so some of that applies in this area as well. Yeah, absolutely. You you probably know I was adopted and, um, and I adopted, we adopted my daughter. So we have so I've definitely lived through the um, both the, sides. Everything goes with that. Yeah, and definitely, uh, and I did. I searched and found my uh, biological parents, my birth parents. So I've been through that personally, and I know firsthand what that feels like. So I definitely have. Um, uh, I see represent. I see similarities with the, in the donor conception community oh, too. It's kind of what led me to this work. Um, but as far as known donation goes, you know, when I'm working with my clients, I I want them to meet with their known donor in a joint session so we can outline expectations, knowing that expectations can change and Mm -hmm. that relationships change. But I I use this accordion analogy where I say, you know, you're always connected. You make your relationship may expand and it may become more distant or contract and become closer, but you're always going to be connected through your, your child Mm -hmm. some way. 
And so that's kind of just keeping that in mind and then being really patient and tolerant with how relationships change over time. You know, we all, we, we lose friends along the way. We gain new ones along the way. I think there's some research that says it's normal to kind of totally change your social circle of friends every seven years. So with that in mind, you know, that, you know, relationships will change and that's okay. That's not something to take, to make, you know, have hard feelings over or have a breakup over, or, you know, be angry, cut people out of your life. That's, that's just natural human nature. So it's all about kind of managing. I I tell my kids that, look, there are times you're going to like me. There are going to times I don't like you and vice versa. And we still (laughs) love each other, but you know, we go through stages of like, you know, what are we, what are our expectations for each other? And, you know, we all learn as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. That is a great perspective. I really want to, I really love how you listen to the donor conceived individuals and that you're willing to hear their perspective without, you know, sort of shutting them down or um, lumping them into one category or another. That's really tempting too. I think I see, unfortunately. So many uh, different folks out there. uh, Yeah. I see, I see a lot of um, parents that have had children through, donation conception that kind of tend to write off um, uh, the voices that are angry as um, they're just angry because, and sort of that won't happen to me. And I think that is, while it's tempting because it keeps us in a protected, in a bubble, Mm -hmm. so to speak, it's not the truth necessarily. It just Mm -hmm. means that, you know, being angry is a healthy stage of grieving. And so being angry is a place where you're at when you're seeking healing. And, yes. and that is very normal. And it, while it may be hard to hear um, that stage of grief, it, it, that is what it is. And I think it's especially hard for parents because they are also grieving their infertility losses. Mm-hmm. And I think it triggers them a lot of times. And so I, you get kind of these defensive reactions. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. what happens. People get mm-hmm. defensive and dig in their heels and they don't want to hear the other side. Yeah. And that's why I, I like listening, that I want to be able to understand different experiences such that when I'm dealing with kids that I know and my own kids, especially, you know, I could say to them, look, what you're feeling is normal. You're not yeah. alone in that feeling. You, other folks have felt exactly that same thing and you're allowed to have that feeling. No, no yeah, one can tell you otherwise. You. Yeah. And there's a lot to hear and there's a lot to learn. That's why I, I, I try to, you know, direct people towards some of the uh, sites like Anonymous Us or We Are Donor Conceived. And there's mm-hmm. so many great stories mm-hmm. that, you know, some are hard to hear and mm-hmm. some are great to hear. And, and it's worth seeing because you see people at different stages of the, their development and their stories to see how they address it. Yeah, so true. I think that, you know, you mentioned a lot about thinking ahead or because you are ahead. What would you say to younger parents that are, you know, maybe pregnant now or trying to become pregnant or have their babies at home, what is something that they can be thinking ahead toward? I think the thing you want to think ahead is just incorporating your children's story into their life. You don't want to hide their story. Mm -hmm. It's their story. Let them own it. It's, you know, you don't want to usurp their story. Um, you want to be able to, I think, to be able to do everything you can to validate where they are along the way, you know, how do you bring it up along the way? Um, because a lot of parents ask me, well, I know I'm supposed to talk about this and I've told them and, and I, but how do I keep, do I keep bringing it up? Do I talk again about it in two weeks? I mean, how do I, yeah. How would you explain to parents that that kind of unfolds? There are points when 
certainly there are points when they'll naturally and organically know where to bring it up. It comes up in, you know, their pre-K class or their kindergarten class, how mm -hmm. families are made. You can talk about it when there are birthdays, when new siblings are born. I don't think it's something you need to hammer home, mm -hmm. but I think at the same time, you want them to be familiar with um, terms. You want them to be familiar with, you know, you're not, not per se giving them the birds and the bees story, but you're going to give them stories of how they came to be. There are certain, certainly there were books for younger kids to help them uh, see that there are other kids like themselves. And so that may mm -hmm. allow the children to prompt questions that they want to ask. But I think there were organic places where it can come up, but there are other things, um, like we said, identity issues. When kids hit different stages, you can ask them, you know, is this something you're interested in? There's a movie out here, you know, that addresses mm -hmm. this topic. Mm -hmm. Do you think this would be interesting to watch? Yeah. Uh, you know, there are certainly, it's come up in, over time, a, a few TV shows have addressed it uh, mm -hmm. in some fashions. There's shows that are, you know, related, kids that were switched at birth. Uh, I forget what TV show that was on one of the family networks. And it, there are opportunities to bring it up. I think once they hit the teenage years, it's a little harder to bring it up without sounding like you're hammering it in or, you know, why aren't you interested? They may or may not be. They got to be allowed it to come up on their own. But when they're little, yeah. you're, you're able to talk about it, you know, how babies are born. Certainly when you have your second child, if you have a second child, to, to give a little bit more detail, well, this is how we made you. and This is how you came into our lives and use the words like seed or, you know, egg and things like that. I mean, I used, mm -hmm. we use the, 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 the clinical terms that sort of got me in trouble with a couple of teachers because my kids would go to school and say, you know, there was a sperm in the egg and the teacher's like, whoa, 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 we can't discuss <laughs> that in here. And, mm -hmm. uh, but the teachers knew my kid's story very early on. Mm -hmm. uh, my kids would say, you know, you know, it came up about what kind of family do you have at home? And my kids would say, well, I have a brother in this state and a sister in this state. And, and the teacher's like, okay, what's that about? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. there, there are ways you can bring it in. I don't think you have to hammer it in, but I think, yeah. I think certain times when you, you know, develop a rotation of storybooks, mm -hmm. maybe put one or two in there. Yeah. And I really like how as you get past the storybook stage, you mentioned asking them questions, you know, like, hey, would you like to watch this show? I think it's important that a lot of people, a lot of parents will say, well, they're not bringing it up to me. So I think they're fine. They don't have any questions. The key here, the key point here is children will rarely bring it up to you in the middle school to teenage years. Yeah. Because one, they're not think they're not cognitively in that place developmentally where they're connecting all of the dots that we as adults can connect. They're not there yet. That's why we're here for them is to help them connect dots. So for example, my daughter one day was picked her up in middle school and she just nonchalant casually said, Hey, um, today my friend at lunch asked me um, if my mom is dead. Uh, and I was like, Oh really? You know, I'm looking in the rear view mirror. I'm like, okay, well, you know, what'd she say? She's like, I don't know. I said, I don't know. Well, it would have been so easy for me to go, okay, that's, we're good. And just keep driving. What do you want for a snack? Yeah. But I didn't, I saw this as an opportunity to, to, to talk with her. And so I literally, I, I teach this in my book, pulled over the car. You know, I turned around, I looked at her straight and I said, Hey babe, do you want to talk about this? Like, tell me more. What, you know, how are you feeling? Kind of went into it. Of course, I'm a therapist, mm -hmm. so it's easy for me yep. to do. But, um, you know, and I, I like mom's putting on her therapist voice. 
Yeah, she is. So, you know, that is, so that helps because, you know, you can stop in those moments and not just go, okay, phew, I, I dodged a bullet, but no, like take that as a moment to go, what else came up? You know, and it was amazing. We had, we've had some, the best, most productive bonding conversations in the car after middle school, picking her up, driving home and she's in the back seat. She, she's not looking at me directly. She felt free to say something uh -huh. yep. and it comes out and I go, okay, great. And sometimes I do keep driving if I feel like she's going to feel more free to keep talking because mm -hmm. she's not having to look straight at me. Right. It's just a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then we would just have some great conversations. So don't, so take those and ask probing questions um, and don't be afraid to just say, Hey, what, what are your thoughts? And they may go, no mom, I'm good. And that's fine. Then you, you know, that you don't need to, to, like you said, hammer it in, but you can at least help them connect some dots. I know there was another moment where she was struggling and it came out and it kind of, I can't remember exactly, but it came about a, in a more of a roundabout way. And she ended up breaking down in tears after I just kind of sat there and listened about her birth mom and not knowing her and wanting to know what happened to her. And so that was a separate day when we were at home. But again, just being able to be attentive really, really helps in, in the middle school years. So um, yeah, those are, those are very important years. I mean, one of the things I kind of, as I said, when my kids were little, when they were in primary elementary school, they had, you know, it, uh, the school they went to, they they stayed with the same teacher for two years in the same class, kindergarten and first, second and third, fourth and fifth. Mm -hmm. And in each track, my kids had uh, two other families that were with them each time. So they knew, each of them knew siblings that were, you know, the, like I said, one was a two mom family, one was a single mom family, and then my kids. And I really had at that moment wished we didn't live in New York City where kids go off to different middle schools, different high schools. I had really hoped mm -hmm. all these kids would be able to have each other all the way through high school. Yeah. So they would be able to have somebody to have those conversations with, mm -hmm. you know, because they knew these kids were like them, that they had slightly a different conception story. Yeah. Um, my kids would ask me, those, you know, questions in the subway. And so it'd be some of the funniest <laughs> conversations where there were other people within earshot and they'd be <laughs> turning around like, what did she just ask you? Oh, that's awesome. And, it was always oh, very wow. funny. I mean, my kids learned that in, in New York City in the subway, there is no privacy. You have to be able, if you're going to say oh, something, you've got to deal with someone else healing you. But they yeah. would ask questions when they would see pictures of different alternative families on the billboards in the subways. Mm. And they would ask, you know, what's that talking about? What does that mean? Oh, um, yeah. And just traveling around. I but I think that. the kids, they ask the questions as they're able to. But as you said, they need at times some sort of device that may allow them to feel okay to ask the questions. Yeah. You know, what, what is going to be able to prompt them to be able to do that? And yeah. some yeah, of that is just, exactly. you know, chance and take advantage of that chance. Like you did when yeah. you got, you know, you didn't ignore it. You turned around and say, what do you think about that? And it was yeah. a friend of mine on, on the dad's group. He's one of the guys I know from, he's here in New York city. And he recanted a story about his four-year-old. Are you my real dad? And, you know, he, I don't remember if he told me what prompted his son to say that. And then, but he turned around and asked the four-year-old, well, what do you think? Oh, I saw your post. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And it was very cute. And I asked him, you know, I said, you know, can I, can I publish this? Are you okay with me doing so? And he said, yeah, sure. And, and the son, you know, turned them and says, yeah, I think you are. And then the father <laughs> said, I, yeah, then I think I am too. And oh, it, I love that. It was very organic. And it was very sweet. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's very easy to look at, at those ages and to smile and, yeah. you know, not wonder what may happen when they're 14 years later, <laughs> yeah. when they're 18. but yeah. it gives you a guide of when, how parents can validate it. The kids feel from very young that they're being validated, that they, their questions are uh, worth hearing, worth saying, 
they'll ask more questions. Yeah. And, and you want them to be able to That's do exactly that. Exactly right. You do. Yeah. As you're talking, I think that we need a book from you um, about those years that you talked about, and it can be conversations on the subway. Because <laughs> I, 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 that would be kind of interesting. I think it'd be fantastic. We don't have anything for middle school aged children and donor conception out there, really. I think the DC, the Donor Conception Network does have some um, some educational books and little stories that are helpful, but as far as in the United States, I don't know of anything, and this is a much needed um, yeah. genre, so. I, I tell you, knowing them and knowing the folks there, like Olivia Montashi, I've known for years, and her husband, yeah. I, I, there were times when I wish I was freaking British and I didn't live here. As <laughs> yeah. much as we got a lot of great resources and organizations here, the, the network they've put together and the seminars yes. and everything, I would, I'd love to be able to fly over there and participate. I know. They're great. And actually, yep. um, Nina's going to be on the podcast uh, oh. upcoming, so it'll be great to have her on and hear more about that. But yeah, they do. They're the only ones I know of that have resources for middle school-aged children. Yeah. So um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is a lot of people have – I think you brought up that you, your child said to you, you know, you're not my dad or something mm. like that. And that moment and that, ooh, that can you really scare parents. What yeah, happened? It, tell us, tell us about I, that. I'm, my, my daughter and I, it's funny, not so much my son and I, my daughter and I have a volatile back and forth. We could love each other and there are other <laughs> moments you don't want to kill each other. Um, and then part of that is because my kids have to go back and forth between homes and that's hard and, and that kind of thing. There's mm -hmm. a whole other world dealing with divorce. But my daughter was mad at me for something I was telling her she had to do and just didn't want to do it, was telling me I couldn't make her do it. And then it came out. And I was, mm. as much as it hurt to hear it, I was mm. just thankful finally to hear it because it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a question or when, because or I always knew it, it wasn't the it was question. Looming. You're going to hear it. Even yeah. people, kids that are 100% yeah. biological children of their parents, they, the kids yell, I don't want you as a parent. Yes. You know, I wish I had. I wish I was adopted. Yeah, I wish I was thing, adopted. Right? You know, you hear everything. So uh -huh. when that conversation of you're not my real dad, that I knew that from the beginning, someday that was going to come. Right. My son hasn't said it yet, but now my daughter, um, <laughs> there are certain things she'll say, and I'll give her a kidding around look like she'll say something that you know can be interpreted with a donor conception bent versus not. Mm -hmm. And occasionally when she says something, I'll just like give her one of these open mouth looks like, you said that? And she's like, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way. And my daughter, I love so much. And she's, she, she's, She's a real firecracker at times. And other times she thinks about things and she has, uh, you know, some other issues, reading issues and stuff like that. So she, for her, she knows life's a little bit harder that she's trying to figure out. Yeah. But this is a topic. It's interesting because I love her thinking about it because it means, you know, she's trying to figure out who she is. She, yes. she of, of my two reaches out to the other siblings more. She's the one that texts the, 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 the brother out in the Midwest, the sister here on the East Coast, mm -hmm. and now is beginning to speak to the other brother out in the Midwest. And I love that she's having these connections because it, 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 you know, she has some other cousins, cousins through my side of the family, cousins through her mom's side of the family. But I find that she talks more with these kids. Yeah. And uh, I'm happy she yeah. does because they build their own family. They're, they're the yeah. ones who be around, you know, after we're older. Like you said, we yeah. deal with kids more as adults than we will when they're children. Mm -hmm. And they're going to deal with their siblings more as adults than as kids as well. Yeah, that's right. That's so true. And, you know, I find 
for one thing, I love your approach to that comment. Almost like, okay, when's it coming? Let's get this one. You know, once it's happened, I know that I've sort of almost like you've made it. You know, like okay, I've made it. They said I'm. Oh, I, not I said real. I'm a real parent now. Yeah, I, now I, you're real. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I loved yeah. hearing it. It was it was the funniest thing in the world. I was <laughs> just like, oh, finally. Yeah, I mean, finally, look, I went finally. I went back in my room later, and it hurt a little bit yeah. because we we hadn't resolved our argument. We're fight. I mean, it took a day sure, or so that sure. blew over. But I mean, it. It hurts, but it's something that you know that it means they're thinking. It means they're yeah. growing. It means that yes. they're fighting for themselves. Like yes. any parent, absolutely. That's what you, want. you want them, you know, yeah. if my kids disappear in the subway unless I'm tracking them. If I have the ability to track them, the, the, living in New York City is one of the greatest things. And it's also one of the scariest things because you're like, yeah. where the hell are my kids? <laughs> right. You know, and that's what I was going to say is that you said they know that you know they're growing, you know they're thinking, you know they're becoming their own person, mm -hmm. you know they're challenging you. Yes. And all those things are, are good things. It's part of attenuation. It's part of how we differentiate from our parents and that's healthy development. Yes. So that's, that's a great point. And there's one more thing that I want to say that's super important too, is the fact that she can say that to you means that she feels safe with you. Because a child who can never say that to their family their non-biological parent means that that relationship would be threatened so much by saying it that it would devastate the relationship, which means uh -huh. then the child is probably protecting their parent and they're not tending to their own needs. And, so and she feels thing. safe with you that she mm -hmm. can say that to you means you have a good bond. Yes. And, a and, safe and bond. I know that. And that was the interesting thing when I, when I, you know, posed that question to the folks on the, one of the groups online you know, what did you wish you were able to say to your father? What would you want your father to know? For so many of them, they, they lost the opportunity to have that discussion, to mm -hmm. be able to, they wish they had known earlier in their life so they would be able to be open with the parents and to be able to yeah. you know, push the issue and to learn. Yeah. And to say, hey, you know, just like you are having this conversation with me, when your children are older, you'll, you've set the foundation to have this very exact type of conversation with them as their, mm -hmm. you know, thinking is more abstract and more, you know, they go into the depths is that you can sit here and just kind of, you know, sit, have philosophical dis discussions around it and um, it, you become partners in that way. So that's, that's, um, that's really cool. Yeah, I think, important. well, awesome. You sound like a great dad. You sound Thank like you a great dad. And I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm so glad that you are speaking. And I think that I, as I um, get more questions from parents, I think it would be great for you all. Well, let me ask you this. First of all, do you welcome questions on social media? I know that can be overwhelming yes. sometimes. No, I'm, I'm fine okay. with it. Yeah, I'm fine okay, with it. Good. I mean, so I, people, it, it, if they have, if they yeah. want to DM you, direct message they can. you, they can, yes, they okay. can do that. Okay, so, and which account should they do that on? Which... I, I would do it through the Life, uh, the Life DI Dad one. Um, Life DI I'm Dad. checking all of them okay. now, but it allows me to at least know the context of what's going on. I mean, I have a few different things that are specific topics against my, my main one that's under my personal one, mm -hmm. but I would go through the Life underscore DI underscore Dad. But okay. if they find me through Eric11714, they're, they're able to do that. Um, the blog, I don't, uh, there, you know, people can comment there, uh, but I don't, those, there's not as much going on there as it used to be as far as the comments. I have no, I think it'd be easier to do it through some of the social media things like Instagram. Yeah. 
people seem to communicate more through mm-hmm. there. And, and just so you know, you found the right Eric if, if you see baseball stuff, because Eric's a huge yeah, baseball that's, fan. Yeah, that's <laughs> so that's Eric. And yeah, reach out to him. And I mean, it'd be great for people to be able to ask you questions. I know that people message me a lot and I just, I can't always uh, answer everybody individually just because of the- yeah, you try amount. to. I think people understand. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. So, and plus it, it helps when they, but they really like talking to a parent who has been through it and you just have such a great approach to this that I think. I, I would ask that if there are any dads out there listening, if they want to join on Facebook, the DI dad support group, uh, there's a good group of people there that, you know, okay. different perspectives, different ages as well. Are they able to find that through a search or is it secret or private? Uh, They should be able to find it as a search. I set it up that way, but if they have trouble finding it, they can just search me on Eric Schwartzman and I'll give them the link if need be. Okay. And that's E-R-I-C for those that are asking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And your last name, if you want to spell that. S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N. Yeah. And uh, they can find me that way. Okay, great. Wonderful. I'm sure you'll get some people reaching out after this podcast comes out and hopefully more guys talking about male factor infertility. That's what I'm hoping to help. Awesome. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Look forward to more. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow for more content, you can go to my Instagram and Facebook account at Jana Repnow LPC or follow three makes baby on Instagram you can get a copy of my book and the companion workbook to Three Makes Baby on Amazon. If you like this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. Have a great day.